This is Mythos, and I am the creator, Nicole Schmidt. This podcast is a storytelling journey through world folklore. Here, you will experience fresh interpretations of traditional narratives, mainly with a darker edge. The aim of Mythos is to ignite a passion for the lore of generations past by telling the stories with a sense of magic, as if they were entirely real. With brief context and analysis in the introductions, the main focus is the retelling of the stories themselves. Welcome to Series 3, Folklorica Nordica. As these autumn days descend into the dark days of winter, we will journey into subterranean and spiritual realms through the folklore of the Nordic world. We will encounter the shamans, the subterranean beings, the wise folk and healers, and trolls and giants of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, the Faroe Islands, and Finland. In these northern lands, we will encounter a fascinating body of tales retold to evoke not only the original magic of the stories, but also the beautiful and mysterious regions they come from. I'll open with a quote from a book called Nordic Folklore, Recent Studies. Thanks to modern studies in comparative religion, it is no longer necessary to raise the question of whether people believe they consist of more than what is reflected in smooth surfaces. At every stage of their personal development and in their relationships with each other and with life itself, people have generally asserted that behind the walls of the body dwells the unaccountable presence we call the soul. In folklore across the Nordic world, the human soul, or hug, is a force to be reckoned with and is intimately connected with the body. Indeed, if a person were to be somehow separated from their hug, perhaps through magic, they were said to have been hugstjallet, or hugstolen, a folk explanation for people who showed abnormal behavior and psychological disorders. The soul, or hug, is a source of power, and manipulation of the hug is the source of all magic. The hug could free itself of the body for various periods of time and could live a life outside the body. Unconsciously or consciously, the hug can be used to affect the material world and can even become a supernormal entity. One of the most terrifying examples being the mare. The nightmare personified a being who puts immense pressure on the chest of their sleeping victim. This projection of the hug is considered the cause for the frightening experience of sleep paralysis. The hug can also be used in what is a, a kind of Scandinavian astral projection, as it were. The Vard, or the Swedish, Um, Vard is not only the doubled presence of every individual, but the dream soul that can separate from the sleeping body. A Swedish folklorist defined the Vard as a being attached to the individual, which sometimes reveals itself as a glimmer, or in the form of the person as a second self, a phantom. 
The presence of the Vard can be felt both by other people and the individual when he is out of doors at night. Similarly, the Vardugger is a kind of spiritual predecessor that can be perceived visually or auditorially. It's, it also refers specifically to a hug that is deliberately sent from the body in enchanted flight. And in a number of sagas, a character or hero in the story becomes unusually drowsy as a result of the influence of the enemy's figure. In this case, this projection of the hug is deliberately used to incapacitate the person through sleepiness, rendering them vulnerable to enemy attack. And stemming from the general belief that the soul or hugger in Old Norse could be intentionally used, was the belief that one could injure another by making them the target of powerful hatred or envy. A particularly hateful, all-consuming envy or avund was very real to the folk, so real that it had physical power over the material world. Indeed, in a region of Norway called Sudestel, there is a saying that ovenhugen, like the Swedish avund, can actually consume stone. In one tale, there is an old woman in the village who is well known for being envious. Another woman in the village tests the strength of the old woman's envy by picking up a pebble, pretending to have found something incredibly valuable, and putting it in her petticoat. She then secured the pebble in a chest when she arrived home. However, the other envious old woman's ovenhugen was so strong it eventually ate away at the pebble, eroding solid stone. In this episode, we will explore Hug folklore in Norway, Denmark, Sweden, and the Froe Islands. We will travel the folkloric landscape, but in a most unusual way, through the eyes of the projected soul of a Finn, another name for a Sami or Lap, the Finno-Ugric-speaking indigenous population of northern Scandinavia, who bear some cultural resemblance to uh, Inuit or Eskimo. And this Finn is not to be confused with the modern Finns of Finland. In Norwegian and Swedish folklore, the Finns are often attributed with magical powers very much rooted in Lap shamanic traditions. One of these powers was the ability to project the soul, separated from the body, through a sort of shamanic trance, and to travel to distant places. We will follow a hug that remains then true to its origins, a pre-Christian Norse worldview. Indeed, Odin, the father god of Norse mythology, had a raven called Hugin, which is the same word in Old Norse and links to the totemic animals of shamanic tradition. As our Finn's soul travels the Nordic world, we will encounter manifestations of the Hug, both bizarre and terrifying. Our starting point, the Lofoten Archipelago off the coast of Norway. And before the story begins, I would like to thank Simon Hughes for his enthusiasm, research, and translation skills. One of the tales he translated from Norwegian for the first time will appear in this episode. You can find other fascinating stories about manifestations of the Hug, as well as other Norwegian folktales, on www. 
norwegianfolktales.blogspot.co.uk. As the early northern twilight descended upon the Lofoten archipelago, the cod fishermen began making their way back to shore. Their boats heaved with the cod that came down nearly from the Barents Sea to spawn along the north Norwegian coast. As they sailed into the harbor, the, a peculiar mountain loomed. A tower of granite with two stumpy fingers jutting out of the top looked like a disfigured troll hand pointing to the frigid heavens. There was a magic alchemy in the sunset. The sky potion contained a sulfuric yellow aglow with sun gold, indigo, and twilight blue. Beneath this enchanted display of sky and mountain, the black mirroring sea was an oily darkness reflecting the meager golden light from a few fishermen's cottages. One could not help but feel that the sea was simply the surface of another plane of existence. The hug of the winter world was displaying its arctic power in the frozen snow, which gripped with white knuckles the black granite mountain crevices. And three fishermen, a Swede, a Norwegian, and a Dane, looked at each other with raised eyebrows for something in the world felt strange and the drumbeat resounding in the cottage next to theirs gave a pulse and rhythm to this feeling. A fin resided there, and the three fishermen decided to pay a visit, for they were curious about him and his strange ways. For they knew him to be a practitioner of deep magic, that he came from a northern people whose sole bodies could run across snow-covered plains with the reindeer could plunge into frigid arctic waters and glide with whales, could see, hear, and touch realms distant and alien. And the Swede, the Norwegian, and the Dane also knew that perhaps this Finn could visit their distant families for whom they longed to hear news of their well-being. For fishermen who sought the bounty of the cod-rich waters of the Lofoten Islands would often spend many weeks away from their families. So, as they stood outside the Finn's hut, poised to knock and call out to him, they heard a drumbeat, low and steady, infused with something like low voices calling from distant places, and reindeer hooves on frozen ground. There was something so unusually deep and wide in the drum sound that at first they stood transfixed, and when the canny Finn called them in, they obeyed. And in this dark, candlelit hovel, the Finns sat on the floor, holding a drum covered in images, first carved and then outlined in blood, 
ingrained with the very worlds, the very realms the soul of a man versed in deep magic could travel. He showed them the realm of sky, the great world tree that spanned all known existence, and also the sun and the moon and rainbows. He traced his finger gently over the realm of earth, showing the mountain, forest, and rock. And then the underworld of Ehrlich, with his seven sons and seven daughters. Once done, the Finn sat silently, waiting for them to speak, for he could anticipate their request. It was the Dane who worked up the courage to ask first. My wife and small child are so very far from me, and I wish to know how they fare. The Finn looked at him with a mixture of kindness and sympathy and said, You wish me to journey to them. This I can do, but you must beat the drum until you can see my soul has departed. Don't worry, you'll know when it does. But do not cease to beat the drum until you know for certain I have left. For some years ago, a fellow soul traveler met misfortune. Before my very eyes, his body suddenly blackened with decay and his belly burst. His hug had transformed into a whale. I found when I too followed his spirit path. And as he swam the ocean depths, one of his enemies transformed into a wooden spike and waited patiently for him to glide by. Well, you can guess the rest. Soul journeying is indeed a dangerous business. And with that, the Finn spread out a coat covered in images of whales, harnessed reindeer, skis, and boats, images of movement and travel. He lay upon his back close to the coat and signaled for the Dane to steadily beat the drum. And the Dane nearly dropped the drum with shock when he heard that same strange undersound beneath the drum's rhythm like low voices calling from distant places and reindeer hooves on frozen ground. They watched in the low candlelight as the Finn mumbled to himself as he lay upon his back, his body crawling, almost gliding like a snake into that fey coat, the gear of a soul journeyer. All the while, the drums beats depth and resonance seemed to stretch well beyond that cottage, seemed to reach down to the very nadir of the underworld and to the very zenith of the sky. Then the fisherman gasped when all that seemed to lay there now was the jacket, yet somehow shrunken. Yet there was the shadow of a presence there, something that could be physical, yet not. The Dane stopped beating the drum, and the men waited. And after some time, the men silent the undulating arctic winds outside rocking their senses like a mother rocks a baby. The fisherman's own trance was broken, and they saw a strange stirring in the shrunken jacket, which seemed to fill out again. The whales harnessed reindeer, skis, and boats on the jacket, animated by the writhing. And suddenly, the fin appeared, and looked at them with a distant blinking expression. Then he spoke.
and the Finn told this story. As the drum beats drifted into infinite blackness, and I felt within my very self a terrible and beautiful lightness of being, as my soul was pushed out of my body by rhythm, and something like the low voices of the underworld and reindeer hooves on frozen ground. I thought of you, my Danish friend, and my hug was willed onwards. Over sea and plain I soared. I could feel the eyes of distant ancestor souls watching me from the Milky Way. I flew until I reached a lonely land of sandy heath and heather-covered hills. And over a great bog I soared, and spirits of water and mud gurgled beneath the soggy tufts of mud and grass. They spoke of sadness and loneliness, of how they could sense waves of the stuff coming from a little cottage on the edge of the Roldskov forest. Do not wonder, my friend, that I was able to find your family's cottage. You came to me, did you not, believing in my strange powers? But if you want more proof that I do not seek to deceive, I saw your wife, who is very beautiful even with that scar running down her cheek. The Dane could not hold his peace. Tell me, Finn, how does she and the little one fare? Finn continued. When I arrived, the sun had descended and your wife was cradling the little one in her lap by meager candlelight. And standing beside them, a gypsy woman whose hug I could see was distressed, even frightened. Even the gypsy could not see me, though I could see she was gifted with sight. And as I stood watching, I saw in a night black corner, far removed from the candlelight, a darkness darker than wilderness night. It had shape, but was distorted by some terrible emotion. Envy, envy that erodes and eats away all light and color from one's hook. Your wife was weeping, saying, the child surely had the English disease and would perhaps die. And yet the gypsy woman kept looking into the corner, perhaps sensing there what I could see. The loneliness of gurgling mud and desolate bogs. I was afraid, but I willed myself to move towards that dark being watching in the corner. And as I did, it felt as if I were traversing strange places and plains. Suddenly knowing what it was, I went directly to the gypsy woman, for I could see she was wise and good, had battled anger in her heart, and had won. She would hear me. I whispered, It's the evil eye, good woman, the evil eye. And I knew she heard me, for her own eyes widened, and she repeated my words to your wife. The Finn paused for a moment to take a drink, and the Dane was beside himself. What happened? Sir, your wife knew this to be true, for the poor child had suffered abnormally for six months. The gypsy woman took your wife and child outside and murmured the instructions I had given her, which they followed the next day. And a black fear gripped my heart as I saw the dark figure glare at me with eyeless sight. I told the gypsy woman to hurry. The next day, at high noon, your wife and the gypsy took the child to a forgotten cemetery in the forest, 
whose vines and trees and weeds had staked their arboreal claim on stone and memory. And I was afraid, deeply afraid, my friend, for the dark being, sometimes darted like a hare with strange leaps from tree trunk to tree trunk, or stood like a bear does, tall when it wants to intimidate. And still, that envy, eroding, eating, stinging teeth biting away to fill its terrible emptiness. I urged the gypsy woman on, and I was impressed by her knowledge. She dug a small grave with hand and spade on the south side of the cemetery, the side facing that realm of warm winds and health and joy. Do not worry, my friend, this was a grave of symbol and mystery, a mock grave meant to trick the evil eye. She placed her child in it, and from the corner of my eye I saw the black shape, darker than the dark, expanding and contracting like heavy breathing, perhaps. And I could feel its delight. It tasted the child's death, I could see, and one could feel, rather than see, it licking its lips. The gypsy woman took the child from your wife and laid the little one, naked, on its back in the grave. The hateful envy that soaked the very air and grass and trees subsided like a wave, retreating from the shore back to the ocean, and was replaced by a nasty, mean-spirited joy. For it, it believed the child to be dead. And I could feel the dark figure drawing closer, a hissing spat in its being as the sun now climbed the sky into high noon, spilling golden sunlight directly onto the little grave. The gypsy woman then turned the child towards the east and then to the west, the very path of the sun itself from dawn to sunset, and the very path of every person from birth to death. And suddenly, the nibbling, twitching envy and hatred dissipated, and the figure was gone. And as your wife took the child, I could see a lovely, rosy glow in its hug. And when I departed, the gypsy woman replaced the sod exactly the way it had been before. So, my friend, your child died and lived again, tricking the evil eye whose narrow vision can only see death at the end of all roads. The next evening was the same. This time it was the Swede who longed for news from home. His aging grandmother was alone in the world, except for him, and a beautiful heifer who grandmother loved and spoke to in low and gentle tones. This time it was the Swede who beat the drum, whose rhythm was infused with something like low voices calling from distant places and reindeer hooves on frozen ground infused with the very worlds, the very realms, the soul of a man versed in deep magic could travel, the realm of sky, of earth, of mountain, forest and rock, and even the underworld of Erlik with his seven sons 
and seven daughters. And again, the Finn's body slinked into his traveler's coat, and again, the coat shrunk and his body disappeared. But this time, when he appeared again, he looked ashen with fatigue and fear. And when he spoke, his tones were low and subdued. And he said, I soared over a wilderness of seemingly endless pine and spruce, and there was a great silence that made my hoog feel light and wild. I glided over a great herd of reindeer, a mist hiding their bodies so that their mighty antlers looked like running trees. I felt a lonely voice beckoning with crone stubbornness, felt its will pulling me over the great forest. And when I came upon a small cabin, covered in faded, elaborate designs, both fluid and floral, I knew that the crone voice was your grandmother's, my Swedish friend. Behind the cottage was a barn, and as I approached, I heard a low moaning from a heifer, and the same crone voice, your grandmother's voice, now in human form, speaking in low and comforting tones. Then came... Something else. A strange darkening wind, like heat mirages on the horizon, but cold, came over the whole place, the barnyard, the cottage, the barn itself. And with it came that feeling I know so well, a powerful resentment, an abysmal emptiness overcame the area, concentrating on the barn. The heifer must have felt it too, for now, more than just birthing pangs could be heard in its bovine moans. There was fear there as well. And I will not lie to you, my friend. In all my strange journeying, I have rarely felt the gut-sharp terror I felt when I saw it pattering towards the barn. A shape that was vaguely human, but with a canine trot as it moved on all fours. The cadence made awkward by hands and feet rather than paws. It moaned in pain and longing. The sound stifled behind what looked like a tattered funeral shroud. I hid myself behind the cottage, getting up my courage to go into the barn. But this was no easy task for in the whining sob of the figure. There was also something crone-like. I suddenly had a vision of another elderly woman, someone close by, I believed, and I knew that this creature was her hug. Somehow, this knowledge gave me renewed strength, and I glided straight into the barn. Then, something strange happened. The entire scene, your grandmother rubbing the side of the birthing heifer, the slick and slimy entrance of the little calf into this world, all of this went so quickly that it was a blur, and only the eyes of a soul traveler could have distinguished it. I then found myself standing inside the barn, and I could feel that time had passed. And I could see this was true, for the little calf now grown lay panting on its side. Its poor stomach bloated terribly. And it lurked outside, padding along with its awful canine movements, trotting on hands and feet, while it moaned and cried like a child whose toy has been taken. Then, my friend, I heard your grandmother mutter, Old Stina and her envy, 
I can feel it all around me. My friend, I can see you start. You must know old Stina. And I knew then that it that, that lurked outside was indeed the hug of that old woman, an envious old woman, alone and afraid. And a light suddenly descended into my mind when I heard Stina's name, and I knew I must hurry, for the little calf had now breathed its last. And I could see that the heifer might soon follow, so very ill she appeared, oppressed by envy, old Stina's envy. I leaned over and whispered a prayer into your grandmother's ear, whispered instructions. I could see now that a light descended into her mind as well. I stood back as the old lady grabbed a bowl of milk and went over to the pain-racked heifer. She's a sharp woman, my friend, for she remembered the whole of the prayer, powerful words I had heard once on the Faroe Islands. I swear by my faith that the Virgin Mary herself milked cows, she prayed. She heeds the dairy maid and chases away all evil from my animal. I make the sign of the cross on your back, and no envious woman will have power over you. I pour the last drop of milk through the collar that ties you. May witchcraft and demons and envy come to naught. A wise woman indeed, my friend. The last drops of milk, those last drops, contain all the good fortune of that precious fluid, all the quantity and quality of that life-giving drink, sent waves of life and health throughout the barn, sent wholeness and nurture into the world, cradled and swaddled that envy that stalked and moaned and cried and depleted, surrounded it with suckling love until it disappeared, entirely. And the Swede, after the Finn had finished his tale, well, the Swede sighed in relief, his wind-beaten ruddy face dominated by a smile. But this lapsed, for he saw that the Finn had a haggard, drawn look as if something behind his eyes, lurking in the mysterious space between thought, were sapping him. The fisherman inquired, what else have you seen, Finn? The Finn stared at them for a few seconds and then said, As I soared over the cold gray gyrations of the sea, I came to an island. Its stratified rock, its striking combination of craggy ancient cliff faces and fresh almost pastoral green fields, the lonely beauty of the place pulled my soaring soul downwards. That a most beautiful sight, one utterly distinct, a single waterfall plunging directly into the sea. And as I glided over darkening field and crag, I saw those turf-roofed dwellings topped with that hillocky thick grass so peculiar to the Fro Islands. I've soul journeyed to the place many times for peace and restoration. The island has a grandfatherly soul, sometimes harsh, but also good-hearted. The Finn paused in his story and looked at his hands, which had an odd sheen of sweat. He continued, My friends, sometimes the hug is so dense with envy and hate that it becomes another being, its own sort of self. And as I stood outside of those turf roof dwellings, the only one occupied, a slick cold terror came over me in waves. 
Passing through the wall of this tiny hovel, I heard a choking sound and jumped when I saw the door of the sleeping cupboard kicked suddenly open and within. A man, laying down, trembling, clothes stuck to his sweat-shining body. His eyes were wide but empty, staring into dimensions beyond. He was conscious yet utterly unable to move and perched on his chest like a gloating toad atop a rotten log was an elemental thing of black depths and granite meanness. A mare she was, the manifestation of an envy too immense, so dense that it became concentrated, fermented, took on its own form and identity. I was frightened for this being was strong, and I cringed to see this elemental thing of granite and meanness jam its malformed fingers into the man's mouth. As the man choked, the thing, now perched almost primly, giggled as it began counting each of his teeth, slowly and with mock childishness. The man's legs and arms jerked like one nearly dead but still defying death through pathetic jolts. I then saw it, a steel knife. The fool, he had forgotten to hang the knife above his bed. And everyone knows that a steel knife is the one thing that'll chase away a mare. Now I still shiver to remember that thing's movements when I threw the knife at it. Now shrunken and shriveled by the apotropaic magic of that precious steel, the creature, the size of a toddler but as raw and malformed as afterbirth, scurried like a rat out of the cottage. My friends, I am weary of the souls of men. I must rest. The next evening was the same. This time, it was the Norwegian who longed for news from home, from a girl he loved dearly. He often felt sharp pangs of concern for their village when he left, seemed to be shrouded in a gray pallor of fear. So many strange goings-on, and the girl he loved, her mother, terrorized by the subterraneans. You know them, those preternatural beings who made the depths of the earth their home. This time, it was the Norwegian who beat the drum, whose rhythm was infused with something like low voices calling from distant places and reindeer hoofs on frozen ground. Infused with the very worlds, the very realms, the soul of a man versed in deep magic could travel. The realm of sky, of earth, of mountain, forest, and rock and even the underworld of Erlik, whose seven sons and seven daughters dwell with him. Again, the Finn's body slinked into his traveler's coat, and again the coat shrunk and his body disappeared. And this, when he reappeared, was his story. My Norwegian friend, I entered your land of fjords and rock and echoing beauty. 
through those northern lands where the midnight sun broods gently on the horizon with golden poise. My spirit felt as if dawn and sunset had met, as if all dimensions and times converged and hovered in a ball of yellow light. Gliding over those mighty mountain grooves, those water-filled gorges, a thrilling vertigo overcame me in images of ages long past assailed my mind's eye. The ice had cut deeply here many years ago, perhaps an ice giant with icicle-sharp hands or perhaps a whirlwind of elementals gnawed at the place until the face of the land had rocky, chiseled earth wisdom lining her beautiful face. Then I called out with spirit voice to your beloved, and the echoes resounded through a particularly majestic fjord. As I soared over shadowed water, something pulled me towards a little village sat upon the shore, peacefully and worshipfully. Settled at the foot of a peculiar mountain, or mountains, squat granite giants that tapered off into impossibly elegant peaks. I heard music and followed it, where I then came upon a hall, dim candlelight glowing from the windows, and a young woman with a very thick braid down her back. I drew closer and saw that it was the most beautiful color, an unusual combination of golden blonde and red. Ah, I can see you start, my friend. You know the place and you know the girl, don't you? Well, the girl was all health and glow, I assure you. But the cowering fear I saw in her face as she peered into that window concerned me. So I too looked, wondering why she hadn't just gone in to join the village dance. Something was wrong here, for despite the inviting glow of candlelight and the lively music... Something or things within that hall seemed to, well, sneer. At first the scene was wholesome enough, young and old dancing and couples gliding with joy and and good fellowship across the wooden floor. From our position outside the window, we could only see each couple as they glided into the candlelight and then back out again, the rest of the hall shrouded in shadow. And with these fleeting glimpses, I then saw why your girl did not enter that room. A skittering demonic meanness of spirit capered there. First into the candlelight came a tall wretch swinging his partner, and behind him his filia. And this projection of his hoog was a horse, so emaciated that his every bone was a stare. The grooves of the poor steed's starvation accentuated every bone, and yet it capered lamely, copied the movements of the man, swung side to side, but with starved exhaustion. And your girl, your beloved, murmured, Of course, we all know he starves his horses during the winter. Then came another couple, and the woman was richly dressed, to be sure. But her face seemed strangely blank to me, for a terrible meanness deep within her hug seemed to be draining her in some way. And following her, of course, was a being, her filia, that made one cower and tremble. Upon first glance, it was a pink-skinned sow, plodding almost happily on all fours, as if trying to dance. 
But then we saw mingled with its pig features strangely human features as if the two spirits were mingled. The eyes met mine, and I saw human intelligence there. It is impossible to explain, but there was a feeling of entrapment, imprisonment, and misery in that creature, debasement and slavery. And your beloved girl then murmured, Yes, we know your stepdaughter, woman, beaten and worked to death. She now sleeps in the barn with the cows and pigs while you dance in fine clothes. My friend, dancer upon dancer moved into our view, and your girl was wise to not mingle with this assembly. For the room was crowded with Fuya, suffering, mean and debased, capering and crawling and skittering and plodding. Your girl fled, went to the home of her cousin, and sat with him by the fire. He seemed a good man. He listened intently as she told her tale of frightening Fuya, and even more frightening, what they revealed about their fellow villagers. And then she wept, for her own mother was on her deathbed, had had dealings with the subterraneans, had not made peace, and now was whittled and withered away by forces too strong for her. Her mother seemed to be the sort who had too much pride, could not apologize or make amends. Indeed, I had felt the discontent of the subterraneans, those earthen beings, when my hoog arrived at that village. It was like a rumbling in the earth. Now, as your girl spoke to her cousin, there was the sudden noise of a plank in the loft. It was being lifted and then suddenly dropped. They were startled, and your girl made to get up and investigate, but her cousin laid his hand on her arm. Let the board lie, he said. When the time comes, we will surely use it. Hardly had he said these words before everything fell quiet. An hour afterwards, a messenger arrived there. Your girls um, had struggled and kicked against great earth forces. Her mother had struggled and kicked against forces great, against beings of mountain strength, and had inevitably lost. She was dead, and your girl's cousin was bade to make a coffin for her. And as cousin was in need of materials, he had to take the board that the Vardogger had played with and use it for Karen's coffin. But don't worry, my friend. The subterraneans have no, no beef, no issue with your beloved, and she's very wise. She will keep away from those who would pose a danger to her, and she has a very, very good friend in your cousin.
As the magic alchemy of Arctic twilight settled once more upon the Lofoten archipelago, the cod fishermen sailed once again into that harbor, but with a different kind of sight. That stumpy, disfigured troll hand pointing to the frigid heavens, that peculiar mountain they had come to know as kin, seemed to be alive now. That sky potion of sulfuric yellow aglow with sun gold, indigo, and twilight blue seemed to whisper, and the very world seemed to have a hug of such enormity that the human mind could never see or comprehend it in its entirety. This time, as they stood outside the Finn's hut, to bade him farewell, they heard a drum beat low and steady. Infused with something like low voices calling from distant places and reindeer hooves on frozen ground. This time, though they still feared such deep, deep magic, they also knew that their friend was a man whose soul body could run across snow-covered plains with the reindeer, could plunge into frigid Arctic waters and glide with whales, could see, hear, and touch distant realms, alien and unfamiliar, and would gladly do so to help a friend. So, when they entered this time, when they saw the Finn standing in the middle of the room with his drum by his feet, when they saw in his hand a very thin, dried skin, they felt awe, but not fearful terror. The Swede immediately recognized the skin as a wolf call, wolf afterbirth, that motherly protective skin cradling the pup as it emerged from the wolf mother's womb. The Swede said, I have heard that by pulling a wolf call over your head, your kind can turn into wolves. I must admit that I have always longed to see this. The Finn replied, If I pull the wolf call over my head, I become a wolf, not only skin deep, but from the very top to the very bottom of my hoog. This would be very dangerous for you, but since I can see this is not mere idle curiosity, I will pull it over my arm. So, the Finn pulled the wolf call over his arm, and before their eyes his arm transformed into a wolf leg. The gray, black, and white fur resembling the rocky, shadowy, snow-filled crevices of mountain and fjord. The musculature and the tendons full of snarling, howling power. The fishermen were aghast. The Finn pulled off the wolf call, and then sat down on the floor and picked up his drum, covered in images. First carved and then outlined in blood ingrained with the very worlds, the very realms, the soul of a man versed in deep magic could travel. And on that drum was the realm of sky, the great world tree that spanned all known existence, but also the sun and the moon and rainbows. He traced his finger gently over the realm of earth, over mountain, forest, and rock. And then the underworld of Erlik, with his seven sons and seven daughters. And then the Finn said, I must take my leave tonight, my friends. I wish you well. And that night, the fishermen waited by the window of their own hut, listening to the beats of his drum. Then, as night deepened its own nature, and the moon glowed brightly, 
they saw the fin emerge naked into the bitter Arctic air. They watched him pull the wolf call over his head, watched as he hunched over the gray, black, and white fur covering, sprouting from his body, resembling the rocky, shadowy, snow-filled crevices of mountain and fjord, the musculature and the tendons full of snarling, howling power. Then he disappeared into the night. If you enjoyed what you heard and enjoyed the storytelling approach to exploring world folklore, um, please consider becoming a patron on www.patreon.com backslash mythos podcast. Um, as a patron, you will have access to special episodes. Um, I have currently decided to offer episodes um, that are more comparative um, of world folklore and are informational on a theme. So upcoming will be um, shamanic practices, uh, soul journeys, but shamanic practices across the world, some more informational comparative. And after that will be fey folk or fairy beliefs across the world. So if you're interested in accessing that especially, um, consider becoming a patron for as little as um, $5 a month. Thank you for listening. Make sure you go to Facebook. Please, please, please like the Mythos podcast page. Um, I do do updates there, and I I do have bigger plans to make it more interactive. Um, And plus, it just really encourages me um, when people like the page and even comment. And I want to start discussions about the stories. So please go to Facebook and like the page. Um, You can also go to my website, mythospodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. Thank you for listening.